net margin was at our best five and a half percent. And that's 2019 numbers. My net margin has dropped to, I'll be honest, almost zero at this point. And that's because our expectations for this year is to basically get through it. Um, wow. And then we will slowly grow that back up. I didn't expect to hear that. Yeah, that's I mean, crazy. It's, it, our volume has continued to, to decline and that's not unique. I think that's generally the market trend right now. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Joel Bassam is the president at Eastern's Automotive Group, an eight-store used car dealer group based out of the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia region. This episode was an absolute masterclass in the literal sense. Joel was very transparent. We spoke about how to exploit seasonality in the used car business, how much money he makes on every single car, how he's been leveraging the Domino's model for selling cars, his shocking revelation about his profits, the unconventional case for buying older cars, and a little surprise I added throughout the time I bought 100 cars with a credit card. Pretty crazy story. I think you'll love it. But before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Fullpath. Wasted data is a serious issue in automotive, but data is the key to driving revenues, which means some dealers out there are just ignoring a gold mine that is staring them in the face. Let's face it, most dealerships are completely overrun with data silos. None of the data sources are integrated with each other, leaving the data as a jumbled mess instead of a clean set that could be turning into cash. Fullpath solves this by gathering, cleaning, and sorting your data into one platform so you can use it to speak to your customers' needs with killer AI-powered marketing campaigns. My friends over at Fullpath are breaking barriers, and I'm really excited to have them as a partner of the podcast. I believe in their product and, more importantly, in their mission to help dealers grow. Fullpath can help you turn your data into dollars. Find them at fullpath.com. All right, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Joel Bossom. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, we got Joel Bassam on the pod. Joel, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Joel, you guys, Easterns, you're considered legends in the used car business, and I don't say that <laughs> lightly. Uh, you've been around for a very long time. And you've done some very creative marketing, which I, you know, as a marketer, I really appreciate. We'll get into that shortly. Let's just I zoom out for that. a second. <laughs> yeah. But, and I'm very excited about it. And we'll also play the jingle. Love it. Tell oh, us. I, I apologize for your audience because it's going to be stuck on their head, I think. No, no. The jingle is great. I absolutely <laughs> love it. All right. So, Joe, tell us how, how did Easterns get started? How did you get to where you're at today? Give us the background. Sure. Yeah. So Easterns, uh, we're celebrating our 35th year this year. So we were officially established in 1988. Um, you know, short-ish version of the story was my father was, you know, a waiter who got transferred after he came to the United States when he was 10. He was working in an Italian restaurant, got transferred to D.C. Um, and he went with his father to uh, the Salvation Army, found that they were selling cars that ran for like 50 bucks. Um, so he bought that car, sold it to his coworker for 300 bucks and was like, the light went off and, you know, thoughts, this is way better than tip money. So went back, bought a couple more cars, sold those to other coworkers, pooled this tip money with another coworker, bought a bunch more cars, then kept getting tickets because he's driving them without, you know, tags or anything like that. And he's trying to park them at the restaurant. Long story short, he added uh, one of his regulars was a dealer. And so he told them where to go, go to this place in Virginia, you can get a dealer license. So within three weeks from selling his first car, he became a dealer. And was working in the wholesale side of things for a long time. Um, ended up transferring one of his wholesale lots into a recon, uh, into a commercial lot, 
And, you know, that's where he really realized what is still a core identity of Easterns today, which is subprime market. And the people who are in that uh, credit position are generally not treated well across the automotive business. And so he started a company that was uh, really intended to treat subprime customers like they were prime. We had higher quality cars. They were treated with respect and dignity. And we treated them with the same expectation of customer service that you would any other customer off the street. We launched with where your jobs, your credit. And then, you know, that was a slow burn for a long time. Good operator, um, single point. And then, you know, the jingle that you had mentioned before really sent us into the stratosphere. And we expanded into 17 locations, believe it or not, at one point. Um, we've actually consolidated down to eight points. And we currently park and sell more cars than we did with 17 locations. All right. So a lot of questions here. So first of all, people hearing $300 for a car are probably thinking mm -hmm. that's absolutely <laughs> crazy. Oh, yeah. And, you yeah. know, doc, doc fees are more than $300 nowadays. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Second thing is, how many years did you have just a single point dealership before expanding to a second, third, and fourth? How many years was that? Uh, 1988, we opened our second location in 2001. So long Got time. It. Long time, yeah. single point. Yeah. Okay. Now, explain to me. What's the basic business model here for people that don't know? Clearly, I, I know very well, but I want the audience to understand, like, what is your business sure. model at Easterns? Yeah. So our current business model is built off of the concept of, at its core, you know, my father, our founder, and our CEO, who's incredibly active in the business, we buy a car when we sell a car. So everything's built around the concept of opportunity buying at, its, at the first step of our entire process. And then after that, it's all about efficiency throughout the entire process of getting a car from auction or off the street to a retail ready car for a consumer and how to ease every single one of those handoff points to save money and do it faster and then do it at volume. Um, so what do, do you mean by, what do you mean by we buy a car, we sell a car? Like, do you mean that literally, or are you trying to imply something different? I'm trying to, I'm not following that. I mean, literally in the sense that when we buy a car at auction, that's, that's the point at which you decide, I mean, you guess in a somewhat figurative way, that that car is going to sell well. Um, if you buy it wrong, you're the never going to sell that car well. Yes, the profit is in the yeah. purchase. Okay, just wanted to yeah, make 100%, sure. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I do agree with that for the subprime business, especially the profit oh, is yeah. absolutely in the purchase. Right. And so we've we that being our core, um, that's that's what starts everything. So you know, our our business at this point is built as a hub and spoke model, which means you know I'm currently in our our corporate center in Sterling, Virginia. Um, this is one part of a massive, you know, I, I feel comfortable calling it a campus at this point. It's about 200,000 square feet of warehouse and 20 acres. Um, and it houses wow. roughly about 100 employees. Um, and this facility has all of the brains and back of house operations that you'd find at a traditional dealership. And for your listeners who don't know, at a franchise dealership, that's really, even if it's part of a larger group or organization, that's, that's its own, you know, entity and established business, meaning it you know, it probably has its own bookkeepers. It has its own, essentially its own HR department. The, ser the service department are you referring to? Uh, no, I mean, everything too. I mean, service as well, yes. But additionally, you think of tag and title departments that handles all the paperwork. Oh, uh, yes. Every single dealership has its own right. team. Yes. Right. It has its own business operations, right? So Eastern's doesn't have that. So my my retail locations, um, we call them delivery centers. And, you know, that's that's designed because they only have sales staff. They have what we call customer advisors and product specialists, which is really just marketing for a salesperson. And then we have sales management staff and lot management staff, um, which means our economy of scale changes dramatically as we add 
more spokes to our hub, right? Our fixed and variable costs at the center point, which is producing everything for all of our stores, stays relatively static as we add more retail locations. Um, so, you know, everything is supported from this corporate hub, this, this single point. So this facility will can put out 50 retail ready cars a day. Um, and that then those then get distributed to all of my retail locations, which, you know, for me, it doesn't actually really matter where they go because we operate a single website, single inventory, and it's a single shopping experience for my consumers. So they'll, they'll get sent out. By the way, we own the trucks. That's part of our campus logistics oh, company. Wow. Um, and all those cars that when we buy them from auction come here because we have our own reconditioning center, which is all of the mechanical reconditioning and, and anything it needs to do to get the car retail ready. And for us, that means standards slightly higher than Maryland state inspection. So my locations are in Maryland and Virginia. And then on top of that, we have our own body shop. Um, the only thing that a vehicle ever leaves this facility for is warranty work because, you know, that's free and I can't do it here. So. Um, everything else is supported out there. So that's really the business model for scale. Um, it's that because we can continue to add retail points without adding a second hub. And our fundamental belief is we can add, I'd say at least three and potentially five more retail locations without having to add a second hub. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically if someone would Google right now, you know, the Carvana reconditioning center, right? This is the, the same concept and, you know, there's plenty of images of that online, but you're sure. operating in a centralized manner right? Which makes total yes. sense. I think for people that don't know, franchise dealerships, like you mentioned, they typically operate a bit more decentralized. Doesn't mean yes. everything's decentralized, but you know, so like they will have service on every single location. Um, now the difference there, which I think is important to note as well, is that service typically for a franchise dealer is a very big business. Uh, right. And for used, it's typically a lot smaller or just non-existent. Do you guys do serve retail service or do you only recondition your cars in-house? So we, yeah, we don't do any customer um, service. Uh, we only recondition the house. And I actually, I'll take your point a little, a step further. And one of the things that makes uh, used car sales at a new, uh, new point a little bit more difficult, at least internally, is what you just mentioned, which is service centers or profit centers for a dealership, right? And that generally includes internal conflicts. So the service manager and used car manager at a franchise point probably aren't friends because that service manager is actually attempting to make money on their used car department because they're kind of separate islands. You know, they're, they're different countries, right? So for us, like, you know, one of the things about our kind of company culture and, and what makes Eastern special is, you know, the trick question will always be, no matter what you do, what do you do? You sell cars because that's our only source of income, Right. So it doesn't matter if you, uh, you know, work in reception, you work in tag and title, you work at, as a reconditioning tech, not tech, you are a car salesperson when you work for Eastern because that's all we do. Um, and, you know, a little bit more color to our background of, of really how we ended up here is, you know, part of my father's growth as a, as a business person and as an individual was going through um, Domino's, believe it or not, which, you know, I know Domino's gets talked a lot about and I, I admire them a lot. Like they're almost like a, a technology company at this point that happens to sell pizza. Um, but they're incredibly committed to efficiency. So he had worked at a, a different Italian restaurant. And when he, you know, came there, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I can make, you know, strombolis. I can make garlic bread. I can do all this stuff. And they're like, nope, we, we just make pizza and we're going to do it in 30 minutes or less. And it's going to be incredibly consistent. So the difference was he worked at this other little Italian shop. Like Domino's had thought of everything. They cut the cheese smaller so it wouldn't clump. They had a spinning mechanism that would catch extra cheese and extra sauce so you can reuse it on the next pizza. They had measuring cups for everything. So every pizza that came out was exactly the same. 
that like little bit of his life stuck with him to the point where we're literally like arguing about $5 cents on FedEx fees in order to charge less for a consumer. Um, so we analyze every step of this process to make sure that we're able to sell cars at volume and maintain a healthy gross profit per unit um, while actually being competitive in the market on pricing as well. Um, and, you know, all that ends up benefiting all of our stakeholders throughout the process because we buy more efficiently, we recondition more efficiently, we're able to get these cars to market quicker and faster, our floor plan costs are lower, our portfolios with our lenders perform better because of the, the actual metal we're putting out on the street is of a higher quality, especially when you compare it to a traditional used car dealership, which generally has access to low, lower quality collateral. Um, all those things kind of add up to why we are in the position we are now, which is, you know, I would say there are, you know, generally the market's looked at as you're a franchise or not a franchise, right? And I think that's a dramatic oversimplification of a very complicated business. And I'd argue that we're, we're more akin to like a third box, um, which is like a super independent or something that's just, it's just different than the standard independent dealership lot, because most of those are single points. Do the current market headwinds scare you? I mean, you guys are, I think there's something to be said. You're very hyper-focused on, you know, one profit center, not very, you know, well-diversified in the sense of like, you know, a franchise dealer that has service parts, new car, used cars. How, how are yeah. you guys thinking about just the current, you know, market conditions and the disproportionate impact it's having on used car dealers? Uh, no, I mean, the short answer is no. I, I'm not, I'm not worried at all. Actually, I think that in the used car spaces is the best place to be long-term in the car business. If you're looking at the, the negative headwinds that are coming towards franchise models more than the used space. Um, and why do you I, think I that? Think, I think that the pressure on the franchise model is warranted in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that the increased adoption of EVs and the pressure that the OEMs are putting on direct-to-consumer in that market space um, is going to create a lot of issues for, for franchises. I, in the sense that if I'm, you know, I'm putting on my, my Ford hat, right, I'm probably not going to be extending doing a lot of open points which for your listeners means that they're adding another Ford market to an existing market, right? I don't think there's going to be a lot of new open points coming down the, down the pipe. And I think if any of them, you know, go under or get consolidated with large players, they're not going to get replaced ever. And I think that that's only going to increase the blue sky costs, which I know I'm losing a lot of uh, in industry terms. Yeah, the blue sky costs just being the, the value paid on the goodwill. When you purchase a dealership, there's a multiple you pay on earnings, right? That's the price right. you pay for the dealership. So that's the industry term for blue sky. Yeah. And so if you, if you think of that concept and apply it to, you know, OEMs basically saying, Hey, I'm not going to let you sell these cars anymore. Um, so that entire market share is in it. So I think that the new market share is going to continue to either stay the same or maybe slightly increase from where it's currently at. But then the availability for dealerships to actually monetize that market share will continue to shrink. And I think none of those pressures apply to the use space, at least currently. Um, and it, it, if there's, I think that CPO has been wildly mismanaged at the you know, tier two level in a lot what, of ways. Which what do you is mean by that? What, explain this. I don't think that there's a true understanding um, from a consumer education side of what the value of a certified pre-owned vehicle is versus you know, what I have, right? I, I don't have certified pre-owned vehicles, not legally speaking, but they're up to a specific standard that we'll stand behind. We back with value for a consumer with a 30-day warranty and, you know, a, a seven-day return policy, all these things that I would argue 
probably have more value than the like the so the so-called you know manufacturer warranty, which is really all you're getting with a CPO in a lot of ways. But then you know they have this maybe sounds a little crass, but the audacity to charge more for that car and say, oh, it's actually worth a thousand dollars more than what Eastern's has because my tech my tech has Toyota on a shirt, right? And that's really what it boils down to in a lot of ways. And I think that because they've done that, there is no it's, there's no specialness with buying a car from a new franchise that's used versus a large, reputable, independent group that has access to a lot of the same places and a lot of the same collateral. I mean, you're making a lot of good points. And as a used car dealer, I, uh, <laughs> we've had a lot of these conversations. <laughs> Look, certified pre-owned is a marketing mechanism. There's no doubt about right. it that different brands have different standards. Certain brands may hold their certified pre-owned to higher standards. But we yes. always used to say, similarly to you, you know, we are fully reconditioning our vehicles to, um, in many cases, to higher standards than our, you know, local competitors, independent or franchise. And so I think highlighting that is super, super important. Look, it, needless to say, it shows up in the numbers, right? It shows up in your right. default ratios, your warranty claims and whatnot later on in the exactly. life cycle of that car. Right. Uh, but there's no doubt about it that um, it's absolutely in a used car dealer's interest to properly recondition a vehicle. Because at the end of the day, you're going to, one way or another, if you did not recondition that vehicle properly, especially if you're targeting the subprime consumer segment, it's going to come back to you and it's going to come back hard. It might be the consumer that needs something repaired and they're pissed off and they, and they you know, tarnish your name. It could be higher default ratio with your lenders. So it just makes sense to play the long game as a dealer, period, uh, because you end up benefiting in other ways economically. 100%. And it's like, it's, it's crazy that we're having that specific conversation where uh, last night I was having dinner with my father. We we're talking about this and it was the same concept. We were talking about how we've always had in our market, you know, one specific competitor that seems to be kind of coming after us in a lot of ways. Like instead of trying to create their own market share, they want to come after our market share, which is normal. It's healthy, good part of business. And, you know, frankly, none of them are still around. And it's because of not having that long-term thinking we will gladly take less money this year to create exactly what you're talking about, a better performing portfolio for my lenders, a better performing portfolio for my, you know, pot of warranties because I want my loss ratio sub 20%, which is what we average. And we do, we get that incredibly low loss ratio because we recondition our cars well. Um, and you know, that so might- for every dollar, So for every dollar of warranties that you're selling to customers, you're losing 20 cents, which is incredible. Right. right. Yeah. And that's including the admin fee. That's, that's very, very, anyone that knows anything about the insurance industry, that's a very, very low ratio. Yeah. And that, just to be to full transparency, that number has gone up recently because we've been putting, you know, quote unquote, worse collateral into the pot because we've extended our buying parameters to buy older vehicles, a higher mileage because of the inventory shortages. But that is a temporary, hundred percent, you know, thing right now. Yes. Right. And so so let's yeah, say that, which is another really good point that, yeah, like everyone is struggling to get cars and, you know, you sort of quote unquote have to go deeper into the well because you right. just can't get, you know, you can't get the stuff we used to get. So we have to kind of right. source in more creative ways, look elsewhere. Um, so that's not surprising. And that's definitely something that I'm seeing across the board. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, there's some stuff that we've learned in there. Like we, if anything, we were almost too rigid with our guardrails before um, because you know our average car we were selling before, um, and I guess I didn't get over this when we were talking about our business model, was a two-year-old car with 35,000 miles or less, right? Two and a half-year-old car. That was our average car sold 
Sticker price was 22.5, give or take. Average credit score for a consumer was in the 680 range. We had a decent mix of, of prime and subprime because prime buyers were really more looking for the vehicle. Subprime buyers are more buying the brand and they were looking for payment cards. And what's happened in this climate is that's shifted to older vehicles with more miles that actually cost more. So our average age of our vehicle has increased by a year. Our mileage has increased by 20,000 miles, but our average retail price has increased by $5,000, which is just not good for the consumer, frankly. And what is your average What is your average retail price today for a car? Currently, it's twenty seven five. So it's gone up when, about 27000 And before it has, so it was 22500 It was twenty two. Wow. Right. And that's just a car. Does that include like warranties or anything? No, no, that's just a car. Yeah. Warranty warranty costs have actually been relatively stable, which is what yeah. which is why, you know, our really our loss ratios have gone up because, you know, that is what it is. Um, like our pop performance was better because a lot of cars had some existing manufacturer coverage. All these things were like by the way, all the stuff that I'm talking about now, this is like part of our buying strategy. Like we think about all of these things for the performance of the portfolio for the lender, the warranty sloop, all that stuff. That happens when we buy the car. How are you sourcing your cars? Like, give me a pie chart of how you source your cars. Yeah, so right now, it's about 80% auctions and about 20% trade-ins and buying off the street. And if it was 2019, the last, you know, somewhat normal period of time that we have the measure, it was 95% auction and 5% trades. We're holding on to more trades than we ever have been before because of the same, you know, reason that we're buying deeper. Um, and we've, we've tried to dabble in buying off the street. Um, we're not good at it, honestly. And I don't have the brand for it in this market. Like I spent 35 years talking about how good we I are love that you selling said that. your car. I, I love but, that you just said that. No, oh. I'll tell you why I love it. Because number one, it shows self-awareness. You're, you're cognizant of the fact that when you buy a car from a consumer, you're a number. You're not offering like, like yeah, there's some service and stuff involved and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you're a number. That's what you're yeah. competing against. And you're competing with everyone and their mother that's trying to buy off the street. Some of these companies are right. public, have way deeper pockets than you, and can probably even afford taking you know lower margins on these cars than you. And so I think that's a very just astute statement to make that you know that's not the sweet spot for you, and really isn't the sure. sweet spot for most used car dealers, frankly. Yeah, I yeah I, I don't disagree, and I I think everything you said is one hundred percent accurate. The uh, the commoditization of that in this in this current climate has gone wildly out of control well you're right it's it's the customer says i will you know they'll come into our doors and say look i've got an arm full of these are the five offers i have either give me a higher number or i'm leaving right they give you and an entire and menu it, and it, right. yeah yeah they're like yeah i got this i got this i got this and it's you know they're not wrong 100 percent. but some of those numbers aren't accurate some of those haven't been inspected and i'd, yeah. ask, I'd actually argue that there are brands that exist that that push past that like i think there's a difference between you know, Bob's discount offering you 25 and CarMax offering you 25, right? If I'm a consumer, that CarMax offer has an inherent value, even if it's $1,000 less. I'll take the, the national brand competition is a really difficult thing. There's an inherent consumer trust that's built with a national brand that you're never going to get from a single point or even a regional player in a lot of ways. So you're always going to have to combat that in, in, in um, you know, just being a smaller player versus a national competitor. How many cars do you guys retail per year? Uh, so we were retailing about 12,000 cars a year. Now we're pacing closer to like 9,000. Got it. And what is that in like revenue? What's your annual sales? Like 
three hundred million. Two hundred fifty million. That? Well, that's it's funny. It's up two fifty. Uh, so that's the funny thing is our our actual revenue numbers have stayed about the same with that this with that decrease in volume because of the increase per unit um, cost. But that does not mean we are making money. You know, that's like if there was something that I, a drum I've been beating for the last couple of years at different conferences is there's this general perception of like, well, everyone's been killing it for two years. Um, and that just isn't the case as an independent. You know, we've been struggling with things that are very specific um, struggles that affect the our side of the business different than the new side um, because our entry point hasn't stayed static like a new cart. Like they're, them off, you know, franchise models charging over sticker and increasing gross profit per unit is a sure high that is going to be, you know, basically negatively impact their year over year comps for probably the next five years. Um, but I mean, they made money. That's great. Good for them. But in the use side, like we were still, we were buying in the craziness. Like, you know, if I'm buying a car for 27 and I'm selling it for 30, it's the same as when I buy a car for 22 and sell for 25. Yeah, it's the, not really the, that different. The, the gross profit percentage, the margin did stay, you know, relatively flat. Maybe, you know, some increases exactly. throughout. Um, incre- it, it kind of oscillated back and forth. But yeah, it's definitely cars prices, like every used car dealer had to pay more for those cars as well. So right. it kind of which meant went the cons- up later. Which meant the consumer paid more. And then, you know, you couple that with um, increase in interest rates. And, you know, the, the loser in the scenario is really the consumer at the end of the day. I mean, they're, and that's that's the part that that is the you know the hardest thing right now for for us as operators. Is I don't feel like I'm doing the best for my consumer, and you know and those are market conditions that will eventually fade. But you know I my bread and butter consumer, my average consumer, um, you know they want a four hundred dollar payment or three hundred dollar payment, and that collateral just does not exist right now. I, I can it's just not something that is possible because I can't buy a twelve thousand or thirteen thousand dollar car. And if I am buying a twelve thousand dollar car, it's got a hundred and eighty thousand miles. Yeah. So what ends up happening is the customer just taking a higher payment because they have no choice. Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. Or they're having to come up with higher down payments, and all that's you know negatively impacts the everything I talked about before: portfolio performance, warranty performance, all that stuff. Um, yeah. yeah it's, so it's, it's 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 not a it's not a great thing. I mean, it, these customers are in need. We're gonna we're still gonna recon up to our standards, and we're gonna put them in a reliable vehicle. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, those are conditions that I can't control. That's the weather. That's kind of what we always say. And, you know, we want that to continue to change, but that's just going to take time. This has to work its way through. I always refer to, you know, the wholesale retail relationships, franchise independence. I kind of, it's like an ecosystem, right? And we introduced like a plague or a blight at some point into the, into the ecosystem, which would have been the lack of productions in 21 and uh, 20 and 21. And now we're dealing with those consequences and we have to just work them through the system. Every car that's produced today needs to get bought, sold, leased, returned to become a used car. And that just takes yep. time. Like we're, we're making wine. We're putting, we're putting stuff in barrels and letting it age. So how many cars do you carry in stock at all times? Right now it's actually super low. It's about uh, 1,100 cars. Um, and we will have as many as 3,000 cars at a time. Um, and we'll, we'll use seasonality to our advantage and our access to capital to maximize returns. So, um, new 2019 so, yeah, talk more about, year. Talk more about that. Yeah. What do sure. you mean by that? Yeah. So yeah, Graham, core, core identity, buy a car when you sell it kind of thing. Um, you know, generally there's a seasonality in the wholesale market. So cars will increase in value during the, you know, heaviest selling times, which is generally March to April, that tax season bump. And, and it'll kind of stay steady through the summer and then start dipping towards the winter when things slow down. 
Um, again, new side has a big bump during Christmas. On the used side, it's like the most you know depressing months for any independent dealerships out there. And even from September to like February, you just want to get over with it and get the tax season. And so we'll, we'll use that to our advantage though. So because we have phenomenal relationships with our floor planning and we have a massive amount of space and a recon that can handle it, we'll buy, you know, thousands of cars when no one's buying cars because I'll be able to get into them at a lower entry price and then I'll just hold them. And the cost you're not concerned, them will... you're not concerned that depreciation will outweigh that benefit given you're holding it for a couple so of months? That's, this is this is in normal times, it it doesn't because there's always that bump in tax season that makes those cars better, right? Yeah, in tax season, let's say like March, April, people are getting their tax refunds and they're coming to buy used cars. So of course you're stocking up December, January. Right. You're getting heavy on the inventory. Right. Tax season arrives, values rise a little bit. Oh, and by the way, the book value rises a little bit. And for those that don't know what book value is, uh, and I'm speaking from experience, of course. Uh, yeah. But for those that know what book value is, it's when you go to get a car financed through a lender, a lender gives you financing, you know, based on some number. And that number happens to be the book value in the subprime world. And so you're buying this, you know, this car that is actually is going to likely be trading for a higher price in a couple of months because there's more demand in the market, but also it's, you know, perceived value or the, the book value that the lender is lending against will go up. And so net net, it's a win because you have the capital, you can afford to buy it earlier, and then you have the right. car come tax season when prices are crazy. Exactly. Yeah, you're you, 100%. So that's that's really one of the things like that. Our buying strategy, if I had to simplify it, is opportunity buying. So that's generally a seasonal opportunity that we take advantage of. And and this is all things that if I'm a single point dealer, I'm going to probably try to do the same thing. But the difference is I, you know, maybe have access to capital to buy five or 10 or 15 cars. We'll buy thousands of cars and hold them. Um, and we'll just maximize that opportunity. So tax season's a seasonal bump. Right. And that happens every year, but take the same kind of concept and apply it to the middle of the summer. So let's say there's a massive hailstorm somewhere in the country and all these cars get dumped into the market. You know, a regular dealership is going to say, great. Oh my God, I just got a great deal on, you know, these 10 cars. I mean, I'll go in, I'll, like we'll, we'll buy no cars for a month and buy 500 cars in a day. It just, it doesn't make a difference to us um, because of all the opportunities that we've been able to achieve with scale. Can I tell you a cool secret? about car buying, <laughs> I a nice one. So I forget what year this was, maybe like a 10 years ago, eight, I don't know, something like that. But anyways, so we found this one government auction, right? Like it was the G, you know, GSA, they were selling government cars. Yep. And this is crazy, but first of all- Clean titles? They didn't, clean titles, of course, all clean. Whoa. It was like bre bread and butter cars, but ready for this, uh -huh. this is crazy. So they, uh, first of all, they didn't charge any fees. Like, let's just start there. There was no, okay. there was no auction fees, which was wild to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but here's, here's what's even crazier. <laughs> they let you pay with a credit card. <laughs> what? So you're getting 3% cash back? <laughs> Dude, you're getting, <laughs> I forget how much, I, I think it was, um, I think we were using Capital One Spark at the time. Yeah. And that was saying 2% yep. or something. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And I just remember being on the phone with a credit card company, like, hey, we need a, we need a bigger limit, this and that. Uh, but yeah. putting every single car on the credit card and just flooding it with points. Right. So that and you was can, you could probably You could probably do like some kind of cash flow with your floor plan too to pay like no fees for 
That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. Well, these cars, we weren't even putting on floor plan at the time, but it was just oh, wow. crazy because, yeah, because I just won't forget that. Just, you, you can't find these things anymore. These things, no. like, they don't exist in the market anymore, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, we, we, if you're looking for a honey hole- Tell, you're, your, you're tell gonna, your dad about that one. I, your dad will, will love that story. <laughs> yeah, well, now, well, you're going to send him down a rabbit hole to go find it now. So that's, that might be worse. I'll, you, you stay up all I'll night looking you, for you GSAs. Yeah, like, listen, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like, if I can pay with a credit card, of course I'm going to add 2% to my margin, two points to my margin. Yeah. But yeah. I, but I think this is the ethos of the used car business. You know, it's like a, a dollar saved is a dollar earned. That's the only way to make it in this business where your net margin is, you know, 3 to 5% depending on the year. 100%. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I think that I'd argue, and I've said, said this before, and I'll say it again, I because of the nature of the independent space, one, I think it, it brings in and lures in more entrepreneurial spirit than almost any other industry um, because it requires almost no experience, no education, and you know, very little capital to get started. And then the returns are immense if you do it well. And all you have to do to do it well is a hustler and someone who understands cash flow really well. And then you can really make a lot of money very quickly um, and grow very, very fast. And I'd also argue that it brings in um, a tremendous amount of diversity in a space that doesn't have a lot, that doesn't exist in the franchise model because of the gatekeeping that inherently exists there. Um, that obviously those, those, those barriers have lessened over the years, but they existed for such a long period of time that there is an inherent systemic difference between the, independent, the, you know, the composition of the independent dealer body versus the composition of the franchise dealer body. Very different when you go to NADA versus an NIADA. Um, and that's, yes, that's which are, you know, which are again, for, for listeners, that's just two, the, the two industry conferences. One is targeting franchise dealers, one targeting independent dealers. I think that the used car industry fundamentally, it, it favors, you know, that, that, that immigrant mentality. Cause I think as an immigrant, mm -hmm. you come to this country and, you know, you, you have to sort of, you know, kind of really figure it out, fight to live in a way. And that is the used car business. It's, I think that that mentality is, it does not serve well in many other industries. Like there's plenty of industries where you need to actually, you know, allocate as much capital and go big. And this is an industry where I, I, you look for every day you come in, you say, where can I save a buck? Where can I look for more efficiencies? That's the only way to survive yep. and thrive in this industry. 100%. And it's a, it's a tweet that you sent out just years ago. I, I, I mean, I feel like a year ago, but. I think you said like the franchise model is, you know, at the end of the day, it's like a, a real estate play and a dealer or warranty play. Right. And I think you could argue that that's relatively true. I mean, for a lot of dealer principles and not all, obviously I'm not painting with a broad brush, but you know, I don't think that they necessarily care if their dealerships are tremendously profitable in the sense that they want them to turn a profit but they're not going to lose sleep the way an independent dealer will lose sleep if their profit margin drops by a quarter of a percent. Let's say, or let's say 10 basis points if our net margin drops. We're going to frantically look through every single receipt and P&L statement and expense statement to find out where that 0.1% increased and how I can immediately eliminate it so that I can fix it. Because that's that's our live. That's our livelihood. There's nothing to fall back on. There's no blue sky for independence. There's no established expectation of, you know, multiples because, you know, as Alan Haig said to me at a table, the dealer principle is the value, right? And so if you're going to buy, do a buy, sell, and they're gone, then there is nothing left. Assuming that there's no brand and all that stuff, like put the push or 
you know, develop yeah. like technology or proprietary things. So yeah, most well, of them with, don't with a franchise, that. you can you can buy and sell them pretty easily because there's the franchise, right. the brand. We use car dealership right. or group. It's to your point, the dealer principle is so critical. It's almost a key man risk. Like you need that person right. to operate the business. 100%. I mean, and there's no market exclusivity, which you get with a franchise. Correct. Yeah. Anyone, I mean, low barriers to entry. Someone can open up next door. It doesn't mean they'll be successful, but they can. Uh, no supply yes. advantage necessarily. So, okay. Yeah. Before we get into some more juicy stuff, numbers, economics, you know, I'm curious about your profits. I do want to just tell the audience, please take a second. This episode has already had like tons of gems and I'm super excited about it. Take a second, tweet at me. Let me know what you think so far because, you know, the stuff you're sharing, it's truly how to operate this business. Like you said, there's a reason you guys have been in business for 30 plus years because you're doing it right. On that note, let's keep going. So what's your net margin? You said you're doing about 250 million a year in sales. What's your net Ever. margin on that? Net margin was at our best, five and a half percent. That, and that's 2019 numbers. So that, that net margin has dropped to, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, almost zero at this point. Um, and that's because our expectations for this year is to basically get through it. Um, wow. And then we will slowly grow that back up. Um, I didn't, so I didn't expect I, we, to hear that. Yeah, That's I mean, it's, it, we, we just want to stay in, in some version of profitability to keep our lenders happy, to keep our floor plan happy. And we're doing that by cutting costs and, you know, and, and doing everything we need to. But our volume has continued to, to decline. Um, and so, and that's, and that's not unique. I think that's generally the market trend right now. So, so that's, that's really big. I didn't expect that, to be honest. So, for, so let's just start. So you said typically, let's just say 5%. So 5% on 250, like 12 and a half million, typically what you're netting a year. Correct. Now you're saying that what is causing such a big swing? Is it, is it volume and your, your, you know, your, your fixed expenses are staying the same? What, what's happening this year that you're going, you know, such a big swing to the, to the low end? Yeah, it's a combination of both. I mean, so volumes dropped. I mean, we were down about 30% in volume, but our gross profit had increased per unit slightly to, to combat that. So we did all right, 21. 22, the, the volume has continued to decline and gross profit has stayed relatively stable. Um, and, you know, that's just the expectation. That it, you know, I don't think uh, it, it sounds dramatic, but it's also the expectation. You look at all of the, um, you know, versions that we can see on public groups. It's, it's about the same story um, because customer sentiment is still really low. I mean, it's been climbing this month and I'm hoping that it continues to climb now that the default woes are behind us. Um, but I don't have expectations of them cutting rates this year, which I think is the last kind of shoot a drop on customer sentiment, getting back to somewhat of a normal level. So I think that there's still a story out there that is not totally untrue, that it's maybe the worst time in history to buy a used car, right? I mean, you see, and once, once CNN talks about the, the car market, you're like, wow, this is, that's not good. That's not good for us. Um, and that's been the case. So customers, I would say that the way I've explained it to my staff that we're talking about our expectations is we're in a need only business right now, right? So I'm saying like customers are coming in the door are in need of a car. Um, not, there's no want out there. There's no one saying like, this is the time where I'm just gonna upgrade my car because I want something nicer. That is not gonna happen in 2023. Um, and I, you know, I don't think it should. Um, now the argument for that long-term means that there's a tremendous amount of pent up demand that will be coming down the pipe and a lot of collateral out there that will be traded in at that point. But I think that that's really the story of it. And you couple that with what you've been covering very heavily, which is tightening of lending. That means the same customers coming in that would have come in two years ago are not getting approved for a loan today. Or they're getting approved for a loan with an incredibly high fee 
that or a really high requirement for down payment. Are you are you expecting to break even this year or yes, are you so you're just flat out expecting that, you know, you're going to either break even be a little negative, a little positive. That's pretty much yep. it. Wow. That's our plan. That's that, that that was our that was our when we exited 22, that was our plan for this year. Uh, and I I do think that it's clearly you again, you've been in the business for a long time, right? And the reality is there've been some really good years for the business. And so you know, you have to isolate, you know, one year. So I, I, again, I didn't expect you to say break even, but I do think, you know, it's important to look on a, on a longer time horizon. I'm sure the right. last five years have been great. Oh, been phenomenal. We had, we actually had stacked 10, uh, six years of, of exact 10% growth um, year over year um, for both volume and net um, profit. And that was the expectation. And frankly, like, you know, like you said before about save a buck to earn a buck kind of mentality of a dealership. You know, I, I mean, we have, we have GM meetings and manager meetings once a month. We bring everyone in from every store. We have meetings, we have lunch and breakfast and stuff. And I mean, I'm telling you every, for the last three years, it's been, don't overextend yourself. There's something coming. There's a recession coming. That's just my father being my father, but that's the like, same thing applies to the business. We've been <laughs> taking those profits and stashing them and investing them and putting them in, you know, real estate, buying all of our dealerships so that we're not over leveraged, like, making all these smart moves to be in a position where when we need access to capital, we'll have it. Now, I'm not saying that by any stretch of the imagination that the prediction was that we would have a global pandemic followed by, you know, a massive inventory shortage, which would then be, you know, followed by lending tightening. But we were somewhat prepared with massive cash reserves to handle this kind of um, instability in the market yeah. because we had an expectation of a recession. I mean, the cycle was longer than normal, but it was going to happen. It's going to happen. What... Uh What's your, how much, what's your gross profit per unit? Right now, it's a little over $5,000. And then wh- how much is that on the actual car versus the warranty? Uh, it's about half and half. Got it. Which doesn't surprise me. Again, for, for an independent focusing on used cars and, you know, near and subprime market, that sounds about right. Uh, that's still, mm-hmm. but it, that, that is on, definitely on the higher end, which is nice. Yeah, it's healthy. Um, explain to me now, what's your customer acquisition cost? Over $600 right now, which is insane. Got it. Uh, that's insane to you? Yeah. Why? What are you expecting? 300 The 300 is normal for us. Got it. Well, actually, is that, Tell is us that, is about... That, was that lower than you thought? Um, no, I think that 600 is right in market. I think that's... Okay. You know, I think NADA puts out the numbers. They're typically five to 600 you know, to acquire a customer. Um, and I think that, you know, 300 is definitely on the lower end, the better months. I could, I could almost bet you that on your best months, you're closer to 300. Right. Um, but I want to talk about your marketing. This is something that I I mentioned it earlier in the conversation. Give us a high level overview of what has been the marketing strategy for Easterns. Again, no barriers to entry really in the used car market. Anyone could do it, but you guys have done something very unique and creative. Can you just tell us about that? How did you get started? Um, give us an overview of what it is and. Yeah. Well, first off, I appreciate it as always. But uh, yeah, so I think a long time ago, you know, my father, whether he knew it or not at the time, was a brand marketer and he had been building a brand in the market. So, you know, I I picked the ball up where he kind of got it to a certain point and continued that effort. But, you know, Easterns is a known brand in D.C. and Baltimore. And we've done that through, you know, a ton of different ways. Um, But we were early on television, early on radio. And I've always believed in the idea of building, um, you know, a difference between the Eastern's name and, you know, 
other other independent dealerships name. And we did that through a couple of interesting ways. The first um, big thing was our jingle, which is really what we're famous or infamous, depending on who you talk to. Uh, for wait, wait, fun one fact second. about that. Harley, can you please play the jingle? People have to hear the jingle. This thing is so freaking catchy. Like I can't get it out of my head. So let's play it. <laughs> All right, the jingle just played. We can get back to it. I hope you enjoyed that. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's, so we, we did that with buying heavy on radio. And I'm telling you, there was a period of five to 10 years where you were not driving in a car. And this is, mind you, by the way, people still listen to the radio, um, where you would not not hear that jingle. And to the point where if you wore an Eastern shirt in public, someone was going to start shouting it at you. Um, it was lightning in a bottle. Um, fun fact is actually in the expansion pack for DC for Cards Against Humanity, which I think is amazing. It, it just became a DC thing. If you were, you were from DC, you're from the DMV, um, you're from Baltimore, you know the Eastern's jingle. That was like a, you know, one of those tests. Like you say at Eastern Motors and someone say, you're where your job's your credit. Like that was like, a, you know, a, almost like a gatekeeping test. Um, and, you know, that was on radio for a long time, did super well. And then it really grew when we started our relationship with different, you know, football players. Um, and we, we've had basketball players as well through the years. Um, but different sports personalities, which, you know, anyone who's listening, who's, you know, if you're thinking of kind of almost a stereotypical car dealership, uh, you know, they probably have a sports figure. Uh, but I think we really set ourselves apart by being really picky um, with who we put in our commercials. And we kind of joked that if, if you didn't make a Pro Bowl, you're not going to be in a commercial. Um, and you know, we've, we've held true to that. We've held true to that. So it actually started who are some with of the, Yeah, I was going to say, who are some of the athletes and celebrities? Uh, over the years, we've had over 30 or 40 different people doing it. Uh, it started with LeVar Arrington and that kind of era of the Redskins and Washington team. Um, and that had Clint Portis, Sean Taylor, um, you know, Santana Moss, uh, you know, just we had Carmelo Anthony before he got signed to the NBA. We had Ray Lewis. We had uh, John Witherspoon. We had, um, you know, Alan Pollock. I mean, it was a tremendous list of people that we've had in our commercials. And we've done it. I think in a car dealership way, like we've, you know, been very honest and saying, Hey, I'm not going to pay you the most, but we've got a trusted brand. We've got a long time doing this and yeah, I'm going to make it really easy for you. Uh, it's a, you know, one hour or two hour annual commitment. And this is what I'll give you in return. I'm not going to make you make you come to the dealership on a Saturday and sign autographs, all that kind of stuff that I think makes things real messy. And it's worked really well for us to the point at which every draft, you know, my inbox and phone call, like gets, I get a lot of calls, a lot of different players, um, which is great. I feel like we've, we've done that well in the same way that we kind of treat our customers. I consider them all stakeholder. But that even got more complicated and, and better in a lot of ways because we actually ended up partnering with the Washington Commanders. So we're, act, we're, we're technically the official car dealership of the Washington Commanders and their executive staff and coaching staff all drive our vehicles in exchange for marketing assets, which is kind of insane. Um, so yeah. it's, that, that's one part of it. Um, so the brand, so we've always said that that brand wins us ties. So same way I mentioned CarMax versus a regular dealership giving an offer. We invest so much in that because we think our brand dictates one, a premium, um, which helps us with gross profit. But two, if we have similar collateral to somebody else, they're going to choose us because we're a known entity, a known brand, something they're familiar with. 
Um, so we kind of constantly beat that drum in the market. We think it's it's not sunk cost. It's something that you have to keep doing. Um, that being said, we actually cut back on it a lot to save costs. And then we saw it slowly wither away. Like you could actually see it in our on our GA. When you're watching our web traffic, you can see the organic start to slowly wow. slow, like slow their way, which is and you're, the you're only kind of KPI the brand marketing. From brand marketing, correct. Um, and then you so our other marketing, we do a ton of other, you know, digital stuff that's, you know, we could bore your audience for probably two hours on that kind of stuff, but it's all like behavioral targeted and finding people in market, presenting them with brand and presenting them with vehicles they're looking for and things like that. Um, but I mean, it's a decent marketing budget. We'll spend, you know, five to $6 million a year. Um, you spread that across two GMAs and eight retail locations. It actually works out to be, you know, still a pretty healthy budget, but not one that's completely outrageous. Um, but again, all that's managed here at corporate. So there's no, there's no GM making these random decisions or getting pitched. It's just me. And uh, my marketing team here, and we run all that in-house, and it's it's a blast. I'm actually in the process of scheduling our next commercial shoot with Terry McLaurin in, in two weeks. So we'll do our next commander wow. shoot soon. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's you a blast. I mean, that's the funnest. Sorry, good. Yeah, no, I, I believe you. I I love I love the marketing side of this business clearly. Um, but you mentioned so wait, you mentioned again decentralization. Another question on that earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you used to have like 16 or 18 locations. You've downsized that. Why did you go? Why did you even expand to 16, 18 locations? And then walk me through the thinking of downsizing that back down while having volume remain the same. Walk me through that. Um, so we had 17 locations. All that rapid expansion happened prior to the crisis of 2008. Um, and we actually had a franchise point at that, at that period of time. Um, so we haven't been a pure independent our entire career. Um, we can come back to that. But the, the reason was we, we actually were able to buy a competitor. Well, one of those um, competition people I mentioned earlier in our conversation that didn't make it, um, they, had, they had copied our model and they had ready Would stores you buy? that were turnkey. Would you buy? So they actually, there's a company called Southerns. They weren't subtle about it. Um, yeah, it's different than Southern. There actually is another group called Southern Automotive. They're, they're a really good operator that's in the uh, Southern area of Virginia and, and uh, North Carolina, but different operators. But it, it was, you know, it was a complicated, messy thing. It was, you know, in and out of court, ended up just letting it go. And actually, I was talking to my dad about the story last night. And he even said to his attorney, he's like, look, you met the guy who was running that, that group at the time. He, was for, he had oil money. And he's like, you know what? I, let's just settle this case, move on, give them their costs. I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to let the street decide. <laughs> Those are the, the words he said. So we let the consumers decide. And within a year, uh, they ended up closing their, closing their doors. And we bought all their points. So we grew real quick. Um, and there's actually a, a real, we learned a valuable lesson about growth through that period of time. But what we found aside from that, which I'll come back to was that our customers weren't being served better. Um, because of all the investment we had made in brand, we started understanding that I didn't need regional points. I didn't need, you know, 10 satellite lots that had 50 or 60 cars parked on them. I have enough of a brand where they'll drive past you know, a couple dealerships to get to the big Easterns that parks two or 300 cars. And so now our minimum parking for a dealership acquisition is 200, 200 spots. And really our goal is 400 plus. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the, our business model now. It's built on super centers that can be supported from the hub as opposed to a ton of different satellite lots because, you know, the fixed costs and staffing, all that stuff gets way more complicated when you're running more points than one more efficient point. Um, so well said, yeah, it's, it's, and, yeah, and, it's, I, and agreed Yeah, the more you can show on one lot, why disperse, uh, 
why disperse the customers to, you know, various locations if your brand can right. bring them to the same place? Yeah. And it, it's also enabled us to be more efficient on one of our value propositions, which is when you shop at Eastern's, you're not buying from one point, you're buying from a brand. So that, you know, the first thing a customer says, or sorry, a customer advisor um, and product specialist or a CAPS, as we call them for short, it's a salesperson, um, says to a customer is, you know, besides their name and how are, how are you is just so you know, I've got 200 cars here, but you've got a thousand cars to choose from and I can have any of them transfer here within 30 minutes. Um, it's all part of, it's part of our BDC language It's part of all that stuff. And we will move cars from one point to another based on customer convenience with no deposit, um, which, you know, our, our close friend, John Harabedian thinks I'm absolutely nuts for doing that, by the way, but I've, I've <laughs> sent him the data and I've proven that it works, but he still doesn't believe it. Um, but it's, uh, it's funny, like he, the, the idea of it just, it, it makes sense because in the used space specifically, and not to be a little, you know, dramatic, but you know, every, every car's a snowflake, right? There's only one of that silver Nissan Versa with that many miles on it with, you know, that specifics, you know, tear on the back corner, right? There's only one of every one of them. So customers, we encourage them to dislike a vehicle based on something small, because I think that's what matters more because frankly, modern cars are all built super well. They're super reliable. There isn't some secret that I'm sure you, you will get as being in the industry all the time. It's like, well, which are the good ones? I'm like, they're, they're all good. You know, all of them will last 250,000 miles if you treat them right. If you treat but them right. What really, <laughs> yeah, re- yeah, if you treat them right. But what really matters is, are, do you think the seats are comfortable? Do you like the way the infotainment is laid out? I mean, are, you know, is the trunk big enough for what you're going to use it for? Do you have car seats? That's to, for your previous guests, the car seats fit in the back seat. Are you planning on having another kit? These are things that our sales staff are trained to talk about with customers because we don't we we don't want to be a commodity seller, right? We want to be a brand that offers options that fit that person's lifestyle, and so everything's built around that concept. the The vehicle doesn't matter, and even in our prep notes, you would ask like, "What's our best selling car?" I, frankly, I mean, I I don't I actually don't know, and I don't care because whatever it is today, it'll be a different car tomorrow. It's going to be a different car in a week, and the probably the ones that we're going to sell the best on, sell the best most of, are the ones that we got the best deal for at auction. It's the best, it's the most financeable car. That's the exactly. Secret. Yeah. If, if this is an independent thing, you, every GM, we ask what kind of cars you want in your lot, left a book. I don't care. I mean, just yeah. to, for you listeners, cars, cars that, that you have equity in and you can actually sell with a low down payment and make money. Yes. The ones that at, at retail are lower, have a less than hundred percent LTV. Yeah. Those are sellable cars. hundred percent. The car that's sitting there at 110% LTV at sticker, is not going to be easy cars. <laughs> What's what's next for the group, Joel? Like, are you guys expanding right now? Where are you where are you looking to expand? What's the deal? Yeah, so you know, it's funny you you'd ask like, what's my sentiment about the business overall? And it, yeah, it's positive, even though I'm talking about not having a great year. And I'm and, you know, proofs in the pudding. We're we're looking at adding at least one more point this year, potentially more in other markets. So um, we we believe that our Baltimore market's underserved. So we've got some points that we're looking at there. We're really close on that. Um, Wait, why, why do you looking, believe that? What data do you look at? Like, why do you think it's underserved? Oh, well, so Baltimore is our busiest store. We have we have one we have one, and I'll call it one and a half store. So, you know, DC just a little bit of our area. DC is a huge DMA that's comprised of three, oh, I guess two states and one territory. You know, I'm by the way, I'm pro DC statehood if that matters, but you know, that's a that's a different different podcast. Um, but the you know that market is huge. It's got eight and a half million people in it. Um, you know, it's served, you know, across multiple states and we, you know, we can't do, we want to have more stores in there, but we're landlocked in a lot of ways. So Baltimore is a much smaller market. It's got two and a half million people in it. 
we have one store that's in the Baltimore, the, the actual like Baltimore County inside the Beltway. It's our best performing store by far, but not even close. Wow. Um, and we think that, and honestly, a problem with the store is it's too busy at times. Like we can't have enough salespeople to fit into the, the showroom. So that's twice where we've been looking for the right property um, to find. And we finally found one that we think is perfect. And honestly, you know, another thing is with the recent woes of Echo Park, they have a, they have a location there that's actually turnkey that, that might end up shifting our attention from the property we had looking at to that property. Because again, it's built to be an independent shop. Um, you're talking but, about the, yeah. the old, the old Carbiz location. Yeah. Yeah. Ethan's I, I know yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. I know yeah. you're talking it's about. It's yeah. good, good piece of property. Um, yeah. but yeah, that's, that's, that, that we want to keep adding that because again, our business model, if I, even if we're not doing well, if I add a spoke to this hub, my fixed and variable costs on my hub stay the same. And if it contributes anything to the middle, it has an exponential return at the bottom of net profit. Um, because the, the staffing requirements and costs of that store are really low. Yeah, it's all and leverage. So Makes total sense. Right. And we're firm believers in buying the dip. Like I, that right now, what buying keeps me the up dip. at night. Buying yeah. the dip. <laughs> I didn't think <laughs> I would hear it on this podcast, but I love it. <laughs> buying the dip. I mean, dip. I, it's the opportunity cost of not expanding at this point is massive. So we're going to look for it. And, and honestly, I'm looking at opening a franchise point pretty soon. Um, there's some Ooh, opportunities that presented to us. That's that a change of set of it. Could, that could work. Uh, well, you know, I said all that stuff about franchise. It doesn't mean that there's not availability there and diversification for the brand. Yeah. Um, and you know, a, a little, you know, kind of behind the scenes stuff for, you know, your non automotive listeners is independence at times can be borderline second-class citizens in the automotive space where they have a blanket policy of, we do not sign independence. Right, you're uh, talking you'll, about. You'll know that you're you're referring to lending partners. Is that right? Lending partners, floor plan relationships, potentially, you know, even real estate. Correct. Um, many, you know, many industry partners are very tough on independence. And 100%. you know, it, it's it's really derived from just statistics because yes, there are a lot of you know independents that are not great, but there's also a lot of independents that are great. And I've also been vocal about this that um yeah, it's it's sort of unfair. It's a reality though, right? Like. Yeah, you know, I've tweeted about lenders that just cut off every single independent, no matter what. Yeah, uh, even if you've been with them for thirty years. So it's uh, I, I agree with you. It definitely feels that way at times. Yeah, literally just happened to us. I mean, regional was one of our longest standing and best partners, which you know part of the truest um, you know, cut off there. And yeah, it's it's it is what it is. Um, it, it's something that we have to deal with in this market. Um, and a lot of our relationships are long enough and have been built on such positive performing portfolios that we might be their only independent in the nation that they, that they accept. They're one of their own leads, right? Um, but the problem is at some point on paper, someone up top might say, hey, why are we making an exception to this group? And so there is potentially some value for that. Like in our past, that gate has been open for us, so we haven't been concerned with it. But in an uncertain economic climate, one of the first people that get cut are independents. So 100%. There's, there's opportunity there and there's potentially a short-term opportunity in gaining access to some up funnel, um, you know, buying channels. But Right now, most of those are open to us too. That's just the funnels are empty for everyone. It doesn't really matter for independent or new. Um, but either way, it's an opportunity and we might do it. And I, I think it'll work out well for us. I, I, there's no doubt that I think we'd be successful at it. We were in the past. I'd mentioned that we had a Hyundai franchise. Um, you know, and we honestly, we just ran it like a used car store. We took it from, you know, bottom of the market to second. We increased its service revenue by 300% within a year. And we just ran it like a used car dealership and, you know, treated customers well. And lo and behold, it worked out. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. Sometimes it's 
the simplest answer is the best. Like, why don't you just treat them well and be transparent? And you'd be surprised how much that works out. Um, but yeah. What does Easterns looks like in 10 years? Like what's changed? I mean, I think hopefully we're able to continue to expand other markets. Um, we're looking at growing more into the Northeast and potentially in the South. And frankly, some of our decisions that changed because of the Echo Park announcement, there's now suddenly a bunch of purpose-built independent stores that are the right size, right fit, right market for us um, that we might kind of pivot some of our attention to. Um, but that's, that's like a really, you know, recent and volatile thing right now. But, um, again, it's the hub and spoke model needs to, is our core. Um, and something we haven't really talked about, um, is, you know, how you leverage modern retailing or digital retailing or whatever, you know, the term will be by the time this is put out for what used to be called digital retailing, leveraging that, um, to increase sales per salesperson. And using that to maximize a hybrid model of in-store and uh, online retail, I think is the future of the car business. I think that there is a huge area of um, misunderstanding for online only that it's going to be incredibly difficult to make that be truly profitable. And you can see that in Carvana's numbers um, and their road to profitability is still really far away. Um, and I believe that in today's world, I'm not even talking about the car business, the real way to market is online first, brick and mortar second, because you're going to hit a certain point where the adoption curve for online is just going to get capped. And I don't think that's necessarily going to go away. I don't think even as Gen Z and whatever the next generation, like there's still going to be a point at which they're going to want to test drive this car. And we believe that having those support points will also enable you to do more online retail. So you take a company like one of my favorite companies is Allbirds, right? I buy their shoes religiously. I think they're almost basically a marketing company. They were online only, and lo and behold, now they're open to retail points. They could cast for Mattress, Peloton. Any of the big brands that have grown dramatically over the last few years, they hit a point at which they looked at their spreadsheets and growth and performance and said, if we want to get more customers, we need them to touch the product. We need them to feel the product. We need to see it in person. And that's the, that's the to me, that's the future. Is Same way that we treat prime customers or subprime customers like prime customers, we want to do the same thing with our online and in-store customers. And so we actually trademarked the term any car, any way for everyone. And that's meant to encompass a few different things. One, any car, we sell cars from, well, not right now, 10,000, maybe 20,000, 20,000 to 150,000. We sell any way. That means you can do none of the deal online or 100% of the deal online have a show up your house. And right now about 30% of my transactions are happening from my, re or actually hung paper from my sales center that are picked up in-store. Those MPS scores are through the roof for 30 minute transactions. Customers wait, love wait, it. Wait, explain that for a second. How are 30% of 30% of your transactions are what? Are are actually the the financing, product sales, custom the the car selection is happening from my BDC department. And it's set up as a deal for the store to print. So it's happening. So the customer rem remotely, 100 percent remotely. Got Credit it. Credit pool, stip collection contract printing, everything's happening remotely. Customer just physically oh, wow. goes to the store to pick up. They sign their, they e-sign their contracts. Um, and you know, they're happy. Yeah. So you're, you're like 30% like of your sales, you're pretty much like a delivery center. Yeah. And that's, that's why we call our source delivery center. So that's, and that's our Got anticipated it. growth. Like the, and what the, are you using? Form, what are you using to power your online sales? Like what software are you using for that? We use Roadster. We were actually one of, we invested in Roadster really early on. So um, and yeah, we, we love that, love that software. We think it's a perfect fit for how we use it. Great. 
Um, but yeah, that's so that's the growth. So we want to keep adding points because it increases our reach for uh, delivery as well as you know customers being in those markets. Um, and it allows us to park more cars. Use use cars you have to have to sell. Um, and right now you can't have them, so we're not selling as many. But that's a temporary market condition that will be alleviated. And so we're going to continue to put keep our foot down on the gas and grow um, because it's just going to make us that much more profitable. And I actually mentioned this a little earlier in the podcast about one of the things we learned in winning at 17 stores is part of that growth model is slow, planned, sustained growth. Because what we found when we grew, when we grew too fast was we lost all of our culture. There was no ownership at the store level. There was no concept of connection to you know, my father at the time and, you know, my father and me and our COO, Tim and our CSO, Ali, like they need to know them. I want to know their kids' names. Like that's important to me. Um, and that is a core identity of who we are. And I need them to have my cell phone. And if he's having trouble logging the podium, he can text me at eight o'clock. And that happens. And I'm okay with that. I want that's encouraged. And you can't, if you, if I'm open, you know, a store a year, like some VC might demand or even a buy sell for another larger group that's really aggressive for growth. They say, I want a store open every six months. I can't do that. I just can't. I can't physically have enough culture built into that store. And so our goal is to continue to grow that. In 2019, we planted our flag and we said we wanted 25 by 25, 25,000 cars sold by 2025. Then COVID happened. So that's not going to happen. I, don't, you know, I, I feel pretty confident in that. I think 20 by 25, if we can capitalize some of these deals is within reach. But even then, it still might not be possible. But let's say 25 by 30. I think that's totally reasonable. 25,000 used cars retailed. That's that's doable. I mean, yeah, it's double what we were doing at our, at our growth. But I think if we leverage our online tools better, we have more points, we park more cars, it's super doable for us. My friend, this was a, this was a used car masterclass. I think people will absolutely <laughs> love it. This was really great. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Loved it. And I uh, will talk soon. Yeah. Pleasure as always, sir. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.